got a frog in my throat. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Dr. Me First. It's me, your colleague in medicine, coach in life, queen of burnout and sass, mother of three crazy dragons, and the keeper of the Amazon account doing all the holiday shopping, Dr. Freaking Aaron Wiseman. You know, I love this time of year with fall and shopping. My nurse inspired me to get out ahead of it. She usually tries to get her stuff by Halloween. That's too big of a goal for me. I'm just trying to maybe miss the rush of December. We'll see if I get it done. Anywho, I did a reach out recently. I heard Steve talking on a podcast called Metaphysical Milkshake, and I instantaneously was like, I want him to come on my podcast. So we did a thing. We sent him an email to see, and sure enough, he said he would. The coolest thing about Steve is he's written a few books, and his latest one, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resiliency Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Just the title alone makes my body tingle. I'm so excited to be talking to him today. He is a beloved performance expert. He's the co-author of Peak Performance. He is radically rethinking on how we perceive toughness and what it means to achieve our high ambitions in the face of hard things. I think you're going to love our conversation today. I love that he's a fellow scientist, actually a performance scientist, who has actually coached Olympic athletes. And when you get that together with some good hardcore science, I just absolutely love it. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's get into our interview. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, and I'm not going to lie, I'm totally fangirling right now, Steve Magnus. I am so pumped to have you here. I have to tell the audience. So being a podcaster, you're usually a consumer of podcasts. And I was listening to Metaphysical Milkshake. I heard Steve talking on there. I immediately went to Amazon, bought my book, got it you know, in two days because I'm in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, read through it, and then I had a big ask for Anna the hand of the queen, my assistant. And I was like, do you think he'll come on? Like he's hashtag a big deal. And he did. I love it. You know, I love it. I think what you're doing with physicians is so important. And, you know, I think that's what kind of drew me to it is like, I love sharing the message of what I'm trying to communicate and what better audience to do that with then, you know, high performing physicians who also often are burned out and struggling with a lot of things. So I'm happy to be here. And we fucking hate the word resiliency. Just so you know, that's that's a bad, bad, bad word in this realm right now. And I love how you kick resiliency's ass in your book. So before I get too ahead of myself, Steve, tell the people on podcasting world a little bit about yourself and the magic you're putting into the world. Yeah, absolutely. So my quick story is this. I grew up as an athlete. Athletics is all I cared about. I was a really good runner when I was growing up. And then I kind of failed miserably. I was kind of the prodigy that was like destined for Olympics and then never fulfilled their potential. And that pushed me down this kind of path towards understanding performance, first through an athletic realm. And then as I, you know, worked my way through my life, I realized, hey, this stuff doesn't just apply to people running around tracks or playing on the basketball court. Like these are things that 
performers, whether it's in the workplace or on the athletic fields or in the doctor's office, everybody's struggling with them. So it kind of pushed me down this path to kind of explore performance, both the science and psychology of it, and just see what worked and what people were doing on the on the ground level. So over the past, gosh, I don't know, decade of my life, I've kind of shifted towards, I see everybody as kind of being an expert at performance. And I want to know how they're doing what they're doing and how they're making it through the the harrowing challenges that they face and, and try to learn from that. So that's kind of my mission to spread those the messages that I learn about. And so your book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resiliency Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Is this like the culmination of all like your years? Or is this like a, hey, I got to put all this shit down and then I'm going to springboard off of it? Okay. So this is an idea I've had in my head since I was probably like 15, 16 years old. Because going back to me, uh, myself as an athlete, the thing you get told as an athlete is like, hey, you know, the resilient, tough individuals, like they, there's no crying in baseball. You ignore your emotions. You, you like throw your doubts away and you just bulldoze through everything. Well, that didn't work for me. And it didn't work for my friends either who were high level athletes. I turned to them and I'd be like, Hey, did you, did you see that hole in the middle of the race? Did you think about stepping in it? And they'd be like, Oh yeah, yeah. I wanted to step in that hole. Like we all had those doubts and insecurities because it's normal. So it's something that's been then kind of in my brain for a really long time. And then what happened is I saw, as you kind of pointed out, it's almost this capturing of this idea of resiliency and toughness and, and misusing it, almost using it as this like, oh, well, the reason that you're not like thriving and you feel like you're burned out and you can't handle that is just because you're not tough enough or you're not resilient enough. And what happened is no one would explain. They'd be like, you just need to be more resilient. And no one would explain what in the world that meant. So it felt like we were just kind of almost victim blaming to a degree and saying, oh, you're burned out, you're fatigued, you're not motivated, like you're just not resilient, like get some resiliency. And that to me is like the equivalent of, you know, telling someone who's never swam before and just throwing them into the deep end and saying, hey, like figure out how to swim. And some people will, but the reality is some people need the tools and to learn how to do it. And I feel like we were fundamentally failing at teaching people the tools on how to be tough, resilient, gritty, whatever you want to call it. You know, as I was reading your book, it made me think about junior high, Aaron, who, so I ran track as a sprinter. I played volleyball and I can think about to junior high, Aaron, where those messages were first starting to come in. Either they were sinking into my psyche or that's when I was really getting more into competitive sports. And I look at it now and I'm like, I don't think the coaches knew what they needed to do, right? Like, it was just the like push harder, run to you puke. Okay, now you can like go take a break, you know, cut time every race. Even I think about like our tapers and stuff. When I was younger, they were shitty compared to like what we know now. I think they didn't know. And I I think that like, the mindset was like, well, this is how it's always been. Well, you know, you're spot on here. And if you look at the history, I actually traced some of it in the book, but there was a lot I left out, which essentially came to this is that most of our education in sport came out of the military and like the World War II era, because everyone, not everyone, but a large amount of people got drafted into the military when they were young. And that's where they learned like how to kind of lead because 
And in the military in the World War II era, it made sense. It was like, oh, crap, we've got like a couple weeks to throw these people into the battle. Like, we got to throw everything at them and hope they're ready for this stuff. But what happened is that idea then translated those people in the military became sport coaches. And then for whatever reason, in the workplace, in doctors, in residency programs, it kind of took from that same idea of, oh, how do we get people ready to handle the challenges they're facing? Oh, just go to this kind of military, uh, militarized model. And then that becomes, oh, this is how it's always done. So why do we treat people like crap and just throw everything against them during residency? Oh, this is how I was taught. So it just sticks around. And over time, just like in your athletic realm, what happens is it's not that people have bad intentions or they're trying to do the wrong thing. They're trying to do the right thing, but they have no clue. All they know is this is how I was taught or coached or led when I was going through this. So I'm just going to repeat the same things, even though we know much better now. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm here in Indiana. You brought up the Bobby Knight (laughs) example. We're Purdue fans, by the way, in my household. So... You know, we're not big Bobby fans to start with. But I mean, that's still super prevalent that we're dealing with is and not just in Indiana, but that thought of, you know, he had really tough teams and they succeeded and on and on and on. And I'm so glad that you brought this book as an example to be like, okay, good for you in the past, but let's really look at the newest research Let's look at what we're doing to people psychologically, and let's look at their long-term outcomes and how that worked out for them. So I want you to talk a little bit how you broke this book up into pillars, because I found that super intriguing as a list maker that made a lot of sense to me, which is now on some post-it notes in my office. Where'd you come up with the pillar idea? And, and just talk about like the general organization, how your brain worked to, to birth this book. You know, that's probably the toughest question I ha- I can answer because it's really hard. The hardest process of writing a book is not the writing part. It is the organizing. It is the outlining of it. So I played around with- But so- you did it beautifully, I have well, to tell I, you. I appreciate that. And that was the work of, of dozens of hundreds of hours probably of sitting at a whiteboard and trying to make something make sense. Because here's the idea, is that- You have to make something. My job as a writer is to translate it to the reader's head where they go, ah, okay, I understand this concept. So what I stumbled upon or what I came upon eventually is this idea of of four pillars. And what I thought is, okay, I have to to establish the problem and where it is. So that got me to kind of like, okay, I need this introduction of where we went wrong. And then I need to gradually build or bring the reader to a point where they're getting this aha moment as we come along of like, oh, okay, that connects, that connects with the next one. So my four pillars I kind of come up with is number one was ditch the facade, embrace reality, which is instead of like this external fake bravado, like deal with the real situation that you're having. And then, you know, it's like, okay, once we get to reality, then we get in the meat of, okay, we're dealing with the tough situation, the discomfort, all that stuff. Well, how do we do that? And to me, it brought me to the second pillar of like, okay, well, we're and I'm in the thick of it. What do I need to do? And that in, you know, summarizing it is listening to your body. It's understanding your inner world instead of shunning it away. Because most of the old school stuff tells us like, 
shun away, forget your voice, forget your emotions, like just push them away, don't deal with them, which goes completely contrary to modern psychology. And then the third pillar, it was, okay, once we've listened to our body, we need to get to some sort of action. Like, what am I going to do in this moment, this, this struggle? And to me, what summarized that is, instead of reacting, respond. So respond instead of react. And reacting to me is just like looking for that escape hatch and saying, hey, how do I get out of this situation, avoid this situation? When in reality, what we want to get to is thoughtful or wise action, which to me is responding. It's that simple nuance. And that then the fourth pillar that I came up with, I called transcend discomfort. And this one was really hard to kind of capture. But to me, it was, you know, a lot of the book is on toughness in yourself. And what do you do in these kind of difficult moments? And I wanted to go broader than that. I want to say, hey, like it's it's about your meaning and purpose, your why. It's about the environment around you, the people surrounding you, the the kind of mindsets you take into things. Like those all impact your ability to quote unquote be tough. So don't just take it all on the individual. Like let's zoom out and see it holistically. Yeah, I would have named that one embrace the suck and hug the people around you. <laughs> I, I love it. That's what it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, and you talked a lot in there about Dr. Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor who had the manuscript script of his destroyed book when he went into the concentration camp and then came back out and wrote Meaning for Life. And or, that's not the exact title, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. That when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard to find like that gratitude and, and that sort of thing. But like realizing that suffering is a common human condition. It's not just you, like you didn't do anything wrong or, and, and knowing that it is temporary and you, you get to choose, you get to choose your heart. Exactly. I think that's such a powerful message. And, you know, on the face of it all, I'll, I'll be honest, like you hear this and you're like, oh, okay, like I get it, you know, see, see some meaning and adversity. But then I got to tell you, it hits you really hard when you read Viktor Frankl's work and you say, this guy was in the concentration camps. And then you read the research that psychologists and scientists went back and talked to survivors of the Holocaust and those who went through the concentration camps and then survivors of other harrowing things from prisoners of war. And it really kind of brings to fruition of these people are in some of the hardest like situations that mankind has faced, you know, in, in, in at least modern history, but certainly probably throughout history. And what they're able to do is they're able to find like meaning and purpose and to make sense out of what they've gone through. And I think understanding that is such a powerful thing because I, I forget who said it exactly or where the research came out of it. But one of a, one one researcher kind of put it like this is that trauma allows us to go on this search for meaning and to then fundamentally kind of reconfigure our life's missions and goals. And, yeah. and that, that's what like came out of, you know, in one of the chapters, I talk about the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic growth. And everybody's heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is, you know, you go through some traumatic experience and then it's almost like your stress system is hyperreactive. But there's also the opposite of phenomenon that occurs quite frequently, which is you grow out of that stress 
And the the difference is pretty simple is that, you know, for whatever reason, they're able to make sense and, and make meaning and, and almost kind of approach the stress and trauma instead of avoidance. Now, it doesn't mean they see it all through like this positive lens, like they accept the reality that what they went through was often horrible and, you know, uh, unbearable, but they're able to kind of integrate it into their life story. And like, that's what makes the difference. And I thought that was such a almost hopeful message that tells us that like, even if we just happen to go through something that is extraordinary difficult, like there's still a possibility of, of growth through it all. Yeah. And when I read that, if anybody has the book, it's on page 261. I bookmarked it because that gave me a lot of hope. I have a, a pretty high ACEs score, adverse childhood experiences. And a lot of the people that I work with in my addiction medicine practice have extremely high ACEs score. And we're all talking about trauma-informed care, PTSD, you know, getting people therapies through like EMDR and these other things. And it was so nice when you shared that, you know, there was studies that came out of prisoners of war and the longer they spent in captivity and the more injuries they experienced, they actually statistically saw more growth in those survivors. And yeah, it's making lemonade out of lemons. And when you're in it, absolutely. I mean, that it's awful, but it gave me hope uh, and maybe a little bit more understanding of why that kid has become a doctor who continues to reach and do more work because it's very easy to sink into your trauma and it, to sit in your trauma. But actually using it as a catalyst in some ways really, for me, changed the narrative in my brain. And it also is going to be a way how I talk to my patients moving forward too, of like, this doesn't define you. This can just be a tool. And yes, you're going to have scars. I mean, we all carry them around. Um, but how, how do we close that chapter and start a new one? I, you know, I, I, I love that. And I love what you said that this doesn't define you. It's part of the story, but not the whole story. And I think whenever we go through something very traumatic, and I'm sure you see this all the time or addiction or anything like that is, is what happens is we kind of cling to it and we cling to it out of a sense of like coping and, and, and insecurity, right? Um, it gives us a sense of security to kind of cope, uh, to kind of cling to or attach to whatever we're doing. Yeah. Look at all the Facebook groups <laughs> and all the different things, you know? It, it, exactly. And I think what, you know, this research and what experts I talked to kind of pointed to is it's not, it's kind of finding that middle path. It's not saying this didn't happen. I'm going to avoid this or to like absolute clinging, clinging to it. It's finding that middle road of saying, of like that accepting reality of like, yes, I went through this. Yes, I need to explore this to make sense of it, to get integrated into my life, to write that part of that story. But it's one of the chapters of my life. It's not the entire book. And I think that that is that kind of hopeful message that allows you to kind of like, you know, accept it, integrate it, adapt and grow from it, but also have the hope that you, you're you still writing your story. You still get to choose like which direction you go from for now. And that is incredibly powerful to me. Yeah, absolutely. So one question I wanted to make sure that I ask you is because of your subtitle of why we get resiliency wrong in the surprising science of real toughness. What in 
two minutes or less. Can you? (laughs) That's kind of hard. What's real toughness to you? Because I know I'll share my answer after you share yours. Oh, man, you got to put me on the spot here. So to me, it's anytime we feel some sort of discomfort, anxiety, uncertainty, whatever have you. And to me, real toughness is like leaning into it, paying attention, listening to your body, and then creating the space so that you can take like wise or thoughtful action in it. So I see it as like expansive instead of constrictive. And when we we kind of approach and explore and expand, just like we were talking about with the post-traumatic growth, like that isn't the quick and easy solution. The quick and easy solution is to avoid, to bulldoze, to whatever have you. But the long-term solution over the the, you know, for the better is like kind of build those tools so that you can deal with the thing. And when you kind of expand and deal with that thing, then you can, you know take better action and you get to better decisions instead of just kind of, I guess how I'd summarize it is being able to know to reach for the vegetables or fruit instead of always reaching for the candy because it's the easiest thing to satisfy my craving. There you go. My thought was it's like when you have that really hard thing, situation, conversation, whatever in front of you, like looking in the eye and being like, I see you motherfucker. And then going and like doing the thing with everything, with your whole self. Like that's what feels like toughness to me. I love it. I love it because what you're saying is kind of embrace it. You know, it's like so often when we take on challenges, we try and make it something that it's not. But if it's tough, like if it's challenging, if it's difficult, if it's uncomfortable, like see it for what it is and then trust yourself that you can figure out how to get through it. And in your way. And that might look look different than the generations before and the generations after. I think it is. It's really taking that more individual approach. It's one thing that I've noticed in my parenting, too. You know, it's so easy to say, like, stop crying, get up, you know, that sort of thing. It's a lot harder to get down on the ground and sit next to your kid and just, like, be with them. But yet, I think that's what, what will help define them in the future. Then they'll, like, rub some dirt on it and let's go kind of thing. No, and there's there's research behind that actually with kids is like so much of kids is they have they're they're kind of given this cacophony of emotions and feelings and stuff that they have no idea what it is because they're kids, right? As an adult, I still don't know all the feelings and emotions. Right. Neither do like neither do I. So we expect, I don't know, a four-year-old to figure it out. And just just kind of being with it and be like, hey, like. You're going to have to experience this. So like, let's just be here, experience it. And then we'll figure out, we'll get on the other side eventually. But like, that's so powerful of a lesson versus telling someone to, hey, just avoid it. Because if you avoid it, you never figure out what those feelings, emotions, et cetera, are and, and what to do with them. I tell people that's like throwing on your garbage in the closet. And then one day, like the boxes start falling out on you. <laughs> I mean, it's the monster in the closet you have to deal with then. It, exactly. Okay, one last zingy question. Did you read your own audiobook? I did not. So you they didn't. I didn't. And there's a good reason for it because they ask you if you want to. And at first I was like, oh, this will be really cool. And then they tell me And then me, it's gonna be like 150 hours. Yeah. They they tell you it's like, oh no, you have to sit here and they're like, it'll be this hour. I'm like, I I can't do that. I'm like, 
have someone else do it. I'm out. So I'm so, I'm sorry, listeners, but I couldn't sit in a, essentially a studio that's like a closet for way too long and and read my own work and uh, not mess it up. No, no worries. I just since doing podcasting, having written myself, uh, I didn't read my own book, and it, it is so much dedication. And so authors who do. Like, I don't know, you you listen to um, like Will Smith or I recently listened to Office Ladies with Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey and they read it. I'm always like, wow, you're like, that's like bonus points. Lots of bonus points. Yeah, 100%. I give 100. I give so much credit to people who do that after hearing what it's about. It's a lot so, of work. So, but yeah, no, yeah, I can, 100 I points for Gryffindor. It. Yeah, <laughs> there you I go. mean, that is, it's big. That's big. So. Well, Steve, tell people if they want to learn more, hang out with you. Of course, they can get your book wherever books are sold and what you're doing next. Yeah, absolutely. So you can check out Do Hard Things, as you said, wherever books are sold. I'm on all social media at Steve Magnus and you can check out online. I'm at stevemagnus.com and I'm trying to figure out what the next book is. So that's my current wrestling. So I'm not having too much success, but uh, I'm I'm going through ideas. So I'm sure something will will pop up here. You got a lot of stuff in this one. I mean, I think you should like juice it for all that it's worth. I'm serious. I think you could you could definitely do the medical education tour with all this information that you have in here. So you need to think about that. I, I love it. That's something I haven't thought about. So maybe I'll I'll go down that path. Well, Steve, I so appreciate you accepting my invitation. It's been a blast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. I've heard it takes a village to raise a child. But you know what else? After raising that child and once that kid has grown up, it takes a community to care for them. Communities are what keeps us sane. They help us heal our trauma. They dance with us when we're winning. Without my online communities, I would have never made it through burnout. And I certainly would have gotten through the shitstorm of this pandemic either. If you too need community, I want to invite you over to my badass Slack group. That's right. I'm not going to be on Facebook, but I do love me some Slack. It's a place where you'll find that you're not the only one. You're not alone. You'll get total validation on what's going on with you. There's a pool of resources. Community is active and rating to welcome you in. We are all helpers who have needs. And sometimes we need to have a community that can surround us, protect us, give us a hug, and lift us up. And that's what the badass Slack community is. So come join me today. Link is in the show notes. <laughs>